welcome back to Atlanta Diaries, the place where meaningful conversations with breakthrough women come to life. My guest today is Vedika Bhandarkar. As the Chief Operating Officer of Water.org, Vedika is responsible for the operating efficiency and effectiveness of Water.org. She works closely with the CEO, the executive team, and the president of Water Equity to support its mission and vision. She previously served as Water.org's Chief Global Impact Officer and the Managing Director in India. With more than 25 years of experience building teams and businesses with Indian and international financial institutions, prior to joining Water.org in January 2016, Vedika served as Vice Chairman and Managing Director at Credit Suisse Securities, India Private Limited, and before that, she served as a managing director and head of investment banking at JP Morgan, where she worked for over 10 years. Vedika served as an independent director on the boards of several companies. She also serves as a board member of the Jaivakil Foundation, an institution focused on children and adults with intellectual disabilities. Hi, Vedika. It's an absolute delight to have you here finally. And thank you very much for partnering with me in this journey. And for those who may not be familiar, Jayavakil holds a very special place in my heart as well. And it was in fact through this connection that I first had the opportunity to witness Vedika's incredible leadership. And every time we meet, I can't help but recall the day Arshana mentioned your interest in visiting Jayavakil. And at that moment, I realized how little I knew about you. And the rest, as they say, is history. So I'm really excited for this conversation. Hi, Anwar. Thank you so much for having me over for this amazing podcast series that you've been doing. I really feel honored to be here, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. You're right, Jevakil holds a very special place for both you and I. And I also feel like Jevakil was one of the major catalysts which got me on this journey where I am right now working in the social sector. Awesome. And I think that might be a great place to start then, Vedika. Mm -hmm. What was the turning point that led you to transition into the not-for-profit sector? So that's a great question. And and I will honestly say there is no specific turning point, right? You know, both you and I have grown up in India and we were working in India through the liberalization of India, right? So when India started opening up in uh, the late 80s, early 90s, many of us who started our careers at that time just did phenomenally well, both in terms of career opportunities, but also in terms of doing financially very well. And I always used to think about that, and I was always aware of how privileged I was. So this was something which was always in my mind. And there has to be a phase of life where my work is much more directly meaningful. That was one. Second, investment banking is a young people's job. And I feel when you're in investment banking, there'll always be somebody younger, leaner, meaner, uh, who will take you out. So it's better to leave investment banking before that happens to you. And that's how in 2015, I said, okay, I'm done with investment banking and I want to do something else. It wasn't very clear to me what I was going to do. And I will admit in a very embarrassed manner that my only exposure was writing checks, which is not enough. And 
I went to a friend, Deval, he and his wife run Dasra. And I said, I want to volunteer at uh, a not-for-profit which works in the area of intellectual disability. He recommended this great organization, Jayavakil. And that's how I started volunteering at Jayavakil. I wasn't very clear what I could add. Uh, because I did not have any exposure or experience in the social sector. Of course, raising funds was an obvious, you know, value add that I could do given my connections in the corporate sector. But what I soon realized is the 25 plus years of working in the corporate sector had instilled some great practices, whether it's in terms of strategic planning, whether in its term of processes, whether it's in terms of thinking big. And I could bring all of that uh, to Jayavakil. And there was a little bit of aha moment there that, oh, okay, maybe I can add value to the social sector. And maybe that's what my next chapter should be. And then I was incredibly fortunate that water.org, the opportunity came to me. I had never heard of water.org. But as we started talking, you know, I realized this is the right place for me. And it's almost eight years later. Here I am. Time really, really flies, Vedika, like the same amount of time I've spent in Jayavaki. I am, however, curious to know that how come intellectual disability? Yeah, that is a great question. So two parts to it. One, there are a couple of family members who've had challenges with intellectual disabilities in the extended family. But also I felt you know, it's very easy, not easy physically, but mentally, to deal with somebody who has a physical challenge, right? You can see it, you can respond to it with compassion. It's much harder to uh, respond to someone who has an intellectual disability, because sometimes you can see it, many times you cannot see it. And so that always intrigued me and bothered me. And maybe I also wanted to get rid of some preconceived notions and biases, which is why I went to Javakil and I am incredibly grateful. So I spent almost a year volunteering there, as you might remember, and I am delighted that I still continue my association with Javakil, but that was a very, very important year for me. Vedika, I'd love to sort of understand then from you and that what kind of ideas and thoughts did you have when you transitioned into the social sector? I'm getting more into operations now and not in the philosophy of it because people do come with a lot of preconceived notions. Yeah, so this might be sometimes hard to understand. So I have grown up in India. I've spent most of my life in India. And in investment banking, I felt like I was in a bubble, right? And I was seeing a very, very limited part of the community around me. So the first thing which joining the development sector or the social sector was very helpful in was actually taking me out of the bubble. (laughs) So before I started working at water.org or maybe uh, a week or two after I started working there, I went and met an ex-client of mine. This client had also worked in the for-profit world and had made the transition to the not-for-profit world. And as so... Uh, what advice do you have uh, for me? And his advice was two or threefold, and which I've tried to keep in my mind. One was go in with humility. So don't think that you have all the answers. Sure, you're an accomplished professional. Second, go in with patience. So, you know, in the for-profit world, no problem is too complex. So if there is a complex issue, you throw more resources at it. And 
you come up with a solution. And the advice given to me was, you know, real world issues are much more complex, much more interconnected. And so you need to be much more patient. And that advice, I still remind myself very regularly. And so I think when I came in, it was like, okay, I'm going to come in with an open mind. I'm going to come in with very few preconceived notions. I'm going to come in with humility. I'm going to learn from our partners. I'm going to learn from going to the field. I'm going to come in thinking no question is a stupid question. And that's what I've tried to follow. I love that. And I can vouch for the humility. I still remember within a week, you were coming in a different transport. I can never forget that. And (laughs) there was huge respect for you when I saw those little things, which, you know, we tend to take for granted. So you have navigated the journey from India to the US, Mm -hmm. from corporate to the social sector, from social sector in India to the US. There are so many different layers, right? So how did you navigate these journeys? What stands out for me is change, right? Sure. So I think the big change, as you rightly said, was moving from the for-profit world to the not-for-profit world. And that was a big transition. And we talked in the earlier question about some of that transition. And that itself was a journey. Ingrained in that was another one, which is in water.org when I started in Mumbai, Water.org does not have an office there. At that time, they used to have an office only in Chennai. And then after I joined, we set up an office in Delhi. So I was working from home. And it took me a few weeks to get used to the idea that you could work from home. But having said that, that experience really came in handy during the pandemic where everybody had to work from home. In Water.org, I've been very fortunate. I've had different roles. As you know, I started running India operations. I did that for a few years. And then I was running Global Impact, which is our programming across all the 11 countries that we work in. I was still in India. And at that time, we were in the thick of the pandemic. And so how to work uh, even more closely with colleagues across 11 countries in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, that was a transition, right? And At that time, I knew everybody internally was going to look out for, oh, is she going to be more partial towards India? And how do I stay fair and have a fair way of uh, looking at things in dealing with colleagues, some colleagues who I knew much better, right, than others. So that was a transition. And then when I became the COO, that was another transition because now I have all the departments reporting into me. So global impact, which is the programming, but also the fundraising and the operations and the HR, etc. So now the question was, is she going to be more passionate towards global impact? Or is she really going to take a fairer, unbiased opinion? Because there's always push and pull between the different departments. So that was a transition. And then when I physically moved here early last year to the U.S., That was another transition. So when I look back over the last seven, eight years, you're right, I've had several uh, transitions, some small, some big. And I think what has really helped is, again, just being very open-minded. So when I was going to come here, uh, physically relocate for a few years to the U.S., as a family, we decided we're going to just treat it as an adventure right? And once you treat it as an adventure, then you do go it with an open mind. You don't come in with, again, preconceived notions or past practices. 
And that helped a lot in terms of a funny story. After even having said all of this, one thing which I was not prepared for. So in December 21, I came here to Boston to look for an apartment. We found an apartment. Uh, my son was very helpful. He He's based here. And I was back in India uh, for winter vacation and I was signing the lease online. And the landlord turned and said, well, you don't have any credit history in the U.S. I said, yeah, I don't, because I've just relocated here. I said, I can show you what assets I have in India or what other bank accounts I have. And they said, no, that's not enough. <laughs> so I had to reach out to my cousin who lives in the U.S. to act as a guarantor. And that was something I was not prepared for. Like at this age, do I have to do this? But you know, again, take it in your stride, treat it as something funny, and then you're okay with it. That's interesting. You know, I want to shift gears a little bit. I'm referring to two reports. One, the McKinsey report, which talked about the fact that the number of women leaders is really declining. And of course, by then, Madhura had started a spire for her, and she's literally created a movement in a sense. And then very recently, I also read an article in the Wall Street Journal. And that article, again, talked about only 24% of women in India are in the workforce, right? And, you know, it further talked about the fact that one of the biggest reasons why the 76% stands out is because of our conservative societies. So my question to you is, one, what's your perspective on this? And two, I'm curious to know, how did your early years, you know, shape your journey thus far? And I think that is ties into the conservative society. Sure. So I think first I would say is I absolutely agree with you that the percentage of women working in India is much lower than it should be. I contest the numbers a little bit, uh, the percentages, and I'll tell you why. Because when we look at the overall population, right, and this happens in every country which starts growing economically, in the early stages, a lot of the women are working with the men in agriculture, right? Yeah. And as the income levels increase, these women stop working, right? And so we have to be very careful with what data we have in India, because unlike in the US where you can get data for every micro segment in India, often there's a very overall number which hides a lot of things. So that's uh, one comment, uh, though it does not take away from the fact that in India, the percentage of working women is much lower than it needs to be for a country of our size and for an economy of our size. And for an economy to grow, the percentage of working women certainly needs to increase. Having said that, you asked me, what about me? Well, uh, my mom was always a working woman. <laughs> So we grew up, my parents were both uh, professors. My father is no longer alive. My mom is retired. So I've always been used to seeing uh, both parents go to work. My aunt, my mom's sister was also a professor in the university. So this was uh, not very something new, right? And subliminally, I'm sure that's had an impact uh, while growing up. Now, when I think back, I grew up in Udaipur, which is a small town in uh, Rajasthan. There weren't that many more, uh, you know, friends, moms who used to work. There were a few, but not that many. But uh, I think, as you know, even if there are a few, uh, that itself has a pretty big impact while you're growing up. 
yeah i totally understand and definitely there's a subconscious conditioning that that's how it is going to be right so you know if i talk about your early years your banking years when you just started your career and i ask you these questions because like the whole philosophy of atlanta diaries is to talk about journeys and one of the questions i often get is did you ever feel the imposter syndrome and then if the answer is yes how did you navigate your way through it so you know you asked me did i ever uh, maybe you should ask do i ever because <laughs> i don't think the imposter syndrome goes away at least it hasn't gone away for me i uh, guess i did feel the imposter syndrome and sometimes even now i do feel the imposter syndrome so when i was much younger and during my investment banking days sometimes i used to feel oh am i ready am i in the wrong place am i the right leader here you know what am i doing here am i qualified and even when i joined my first corporate boards as a board member you know the same question am i qualified enough to be at this table do i really have anything valuable to add and i don't have um, very phenomenal advice here but one was just working hard so whatever i was going to do if i was going to be a board member or if i was going to be an investment banker just really being very well prepared and working hard and second was listening really listening and i'll tell you especially in investment banking often bankers are so eager to say what they have learned right that they are just spewing it out in front of a client and not really giving the opportunity for the client to say what's on their mind and so my strategy was all about okay i'm going to go and listen and i'm going to go and listen not just to what the client says but what they don't say too right and if i listen then i know i will be able to come up with a solution or i will be able to come with value add in a board meeting that's exactly what i do and as i said this imposter syndrome does not go away it stays it's very regular and sometimes i remind myself you know what vedika you know more on this topic than anybody else in this room yeah. so stop <laughs> doubting yourself so you know another question a lot of women have asked me was or is rather that women have to prove their point whereas men have to simply state it what are your thoughts on that and did you experience that as well and how did you deal with it yeah i mean i would say yes the way it manifests itself or at least the way i've seen it manifesting itself often is a woman says something it doesn't register and the same point is made by a man or it's paraphrased by a man and then everybody goes oh you know what a smart thing and i found even if you're an observer if you see this or if it happens to you uh one of the biggest messages i would have to all women is allyship right to yeah. so be an ally so i'll give you a very recent example again on one of the boards that i am also a member of the audit committee and for some time i had been saying as a part of that audit committee that the leaders of that company the way they evaluated the internal audit rating should also be a way of evaluating them and it had really not got traction the company was not ready for it etc and then recently in a meeting another board member said this and i was so impressed the chief internal auditor is also a lady of that company 
And she just turned around and said, yes, and Vedika has been uh, saying this for a long time. And it was so unexpected. And it was such a fabulous act of allyship because she just stood up for me. And I try and do exactly the same thing, whether it's an internal meeting, an external meeting at water.org or an external meeting, just to help each other out. So I think today, the way I'm responding to it is through allyship. When I was younger, how do I uh, respond to it? Not always in the best manner. Sometimes it would just get me very upset. It would get me very angry. I would come back and rave and rant or sometimes cry about it. But I think you just have to, to look out for yourself. And without getting emotional, you know, make the point again and sort of remind everybody that this was you. Mm, be your own cheerleader. Absolutely. Absolutely. Develop an internal network where you are cheering for others. So they will also cheer for you, but also be your own cheerleader. Yeah. Talking about getting angry, which you just referred to right now. So were there any other workplace triggers for you? And if yes, how do you combat them? (laughs) So even today, bullying at workplace is a big trigger for me. You know, not letting somebody else speak or interrupting others is a trigger for me. We often see it in uh, meetings and it's not necessarily a gender thing. Often it is, but not necessarily gender. Sometimes it can be title, right? So somebody with a bigger title doesn't let the people who report into them speak. So those are triggers for me and I call them out. And again, non-confrontationally, but saying, oh, so and so hasn't had a chance to speak or would love to hear from uh, Enma. You've been very quiet. Would you like to add uh, something? The other trigger is uh, the chalta hai attitude. So I hold very high standards for myself and I expect the same from my team, which does sometimes make me a pain, <laughs> a pain in the behind. And so if you ask some of my previous teams, they'll always tell you, Oh, she's such a stickler. She gets upset with small mistakes. And I do. I have tried to get better at it over the years. uh, But that is certainly a trigger for me. And this has triggered a very interesting question. How do you prioritize or see perspective between attitude and competence? I think that's a question I'm struggling with so many of my clients. It's a constant struggle. So I'd love to hear your perspective on that. It's such a great question. And I I don't know if I have a good answer for you, Emma, but I feel if you have the right attitude, that's much, much more valuable than somebody with really high competence, but who sucks up your energy, right? If you're a supervisor, sucks up your energy if you're a colleague or reporting into them. I mean, that's probably the worst. So if you ask me, would I have a team full of highly competent people, but all divas and difficult to manage? Is that better? Or would I have a team full of people who may not be the most competent, but have the right attitude where they are willing to learn? You know, I will choose the latter. In real life, you usually have a combination, but bad behavior in terms of bullying or uh, any other, some of these are just non-starters for me and and they just don't work Mm -hmm. any setbacks in your journey 
Vedika, and if yes, how did you navigate them? So for a long time, as I said, for 25 years, I was in investment banking, where every time you don't win a transaction or where you don't win a deal, it is a setback. And they come quite often. You learn to get used to them. But on that too, I learned a very interesting lesson. So, you know, you had this thing that, yes, there will be setbacks, there will be transactions which you don't win, but you can't uh, wear it on your face. And you shouldn't wear it on your face because uh, you want to keep encouraging the team. And then in the last bank, there was this very large uh, transaction for an organization who we knew well. This organization CEO is actually a friend of mine. And we knew this transaction was going to come. We had done all the right things, making sure the right people were in front of this organization, covering them at all levels, not just covering the CEO. So everything right, was done and we didn't win. Mm-hmm. And I did not realize that, but it really showed on my face. And a young colleague came into my office and said, I want to talk to you. I said, yeah, sure. What's up? said, you know, the first time I've really seen you disappointed. And actually, I'm very grateful I saw that. And I am happy in a way that I saw that. I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, we've had losses in the past, and you've been stoic throughout. And I used to wonder whether she really cares for the business. And this time, I'm seeing how much it is hurting her. And I know that she really cares. And that was such an aha moment for me. And yeah. now because here I thought I was being a good leader by being stoic. <laughs> but, I, you know, that was a big lesson for me that you need to be vulnerable enough yeah. and say, yes, the setback is hurting me. Yes, we will regroup and we will come out of it. But it's okay to be upset and it's okay to show it on your face. And I'm going to say something which is going to sound very weird. But as I've grown older, and especially when I've come to the social sector, every setback I really feel is an opportunity. So it's okay. We tried something, we tried an innovation, it didn't work. That's okay. Let's regroup. Let's talk about it. Let's figure out what was it that didn't work? What is it that we can learn from it? And then let's learn from it and try something new. So it sounds unreal, but it is true. I think you've humanized the whole experience, right? You've sort of spoke about vulnerability because that would have been an obvious question otherwise, right? That how can you bring vulnerability in your leadership style? You know, Vedika, this now triggers one or two other thoughts in my mind. And that's actually the Vedika, which even I didn't know. So thank you for sharing all these things, right? <laughs> even I always saw the stoic you and I couldn't imagine the vulnerable you. So now that we're talking about it, what has been your greatest mistake? Oh, there's so many mistakes, Anma. <laughs> so there isn't one big mistake. I've made so many mistakes in my career, in my professional life, and in my personal life. So, you know, wrong judgment, wrong calls. Again, going back to investment banking, you feel, okay, this doesn't sound okay, but let's do it. And, you know, big lesson, always listen to your gut. But more recently at water.org, a few years ago when the pandemic started uh, and things were pretty difficult from a financial point of view because a lot of donors were stepping away, we had to make some tough decisions. 
And one of the decisions also was to step away from a country where we had been working, where there were many other challenges in the country. And it was a hard decision. And the mistake, which I feel terrible about even today, was at what point of time do you bring the country lead into those discussions? And do you bring them early on, uh, where the discussions can be very hard for that country lead? Or do you leave that to too late? And I know I made a mistake. I should have brought them in early. And I don't think they can forgive me ever uh, for that decision. But every month we have a, a staff meeting. And this did come up and uh, I owned up and I said, yes, this was a judgment call, which I made at that time, given all the inputs that I had, given all the facts that I knew, given the advice that I got, this was my decision. I'm not blaming anybody for the advice, but I know in hindsight, it it was the wrong call. So I think you have to stand up and, and own to your mistakes. And learn from them again. And, you know, the other thing is, Elma, because you can't change what you've already done, there's absolutely zero point in keeping on obsessively thinking about it because it's not very helpful. You have to learn from it. You shouldn't make the same mistake again, but there's no point in thinking about it all the time. Yeah. And is that the elder, wiser Vedika saying it? Or is this also a journey is what I'm wondering. It's certainly a journey, if you're right. But I think not thinking about what could have is something I've practiced from the beginning. But yeah, I'm sure there's an elder-wiser component. You also spoke about some personal mistakes. How do you feel about talking about them? So there are too many to talk about here, but I want to give you one example. So this is going back many years. My mom was turning 60. They used to live in Udaipur. So my dad decided to throw a small party for her and decided to call, uh, you know, all our friends, neighbors, her colleagues from the university. And both my brother and I were supposed to fly down for it. And my sister is much younger. She was already there. And the last minute I had a pitch and I clearly remember which pitch it was. And I made the call that my brother is going and I will not go. And I still regret it until today. Yeah, this really actually takes me to a related question. I know investment money is hard. I know it's cutthroat. I know it's difficult. So how did you, Vedika, balance your personal life and professional life, which you're doing even now, living in two different countries? Right? <laughs> you know, I think, First thing I would say is to every working woman, I would say, don't fall for that superwoman nonsense, right? I think that superwoman nonsense has been propagated and built by men. So don't ever fall for that. That's the first thing I would say. I think you just have to be incredibly disciplined. You have to be ruthless about what is a priority and what is not. And at different stages of your life, there will be different priorities, right? So when our kids were small, I always had to travel for work. But it was immensely important for me that I come back, even if it's late at night, so that in the morning when the kids are getting up to go to school, I'm up with them. Mm. And so that's the choice I made. And it meant some crazy days when you took an early morning flight and came back late at night. Similarly, when you are with kids, 
you are with them. So you're not taking calls, you're not looking at emails, but you are with them. Vacations was sacrosanct. So we have to be away during the vacations. And if I had to look at my emails, I used to do it before the kids got up or after they went to bed. And then involving the kids to the extent I could. So many years ago, this is, again, when um, my son, who is now 26, so he was very small and my daughter was even younger. I don't know if you remember in India, in Mumbai, when there are IPOs, there are these big billboards, right? Uh, yeah. Which yeah. Uh, talk about the IPO. So we were doing the IPO for TCS. So this is going back many, many years. Right. And I was going to be on the roadshow, which meant I was going to be away for, I think, 10 to 14 days. So we were in the car and I showed that to my son, the billboard. I said, why don't you read it? And he could read it. And I said, that's what mom is going to be doing. And that's why she is going to go away. Now, I don't know how much he understood, but he made the connection, right? And so involving the kids as much as you can in the work you are doing also helps in terms of balancing. Yeah, and communicating with them. And they also feel a sense of pride then, right? They do. And, you know, there was a phase of life where we had hardly any socializing because either we were at work or I was socializing for work or I was at home. And that was okay again. So as I said, priorities change you know, at different phases of your life. Yeah, and probably compromises you made in a sense, right? Yeah, what was more important to you? You know, rather than compromises, I prefer the word choices. I love that. No, I totally, (laughs) I appreciate it. It's all about perspective. So Vedika, now that you've sort of come into this second phase, if I may say so, has your definition of success and achievement changed or how will you define your definition of success and achievement? Yeah, I think the definition of success does evolve with time and it has evolved with time. And again, I'm going to say something which probably will be hard to believe. But if you ask my ex-team members in investment banking, they'll say it's true. So even when I was in investment banking, my definition of success was not the bonus that I earned, right? And that's what they always say that, oh, this was so bad. And that's why Vedika never argued for higher bonuses for us. But it was important to me that my team and I am fairly compensated, sure. But that wasn't the definition of success. The definition of success at that time was, you know, how did you do compared to other banks? Where were you placed on the league tables? Were you getting interesting business, et cetera, et cetera. I think the definition of success over the years has also been the work that you do. Is that meaningful? Does it give you joy? And that was one of the reasons I did leave investment banking. I had great years in investment banking and I really enjoyed my work. But after some time, it had stopped giving me joy. And I will absolutely say the work at water.org is very meaningful and gives me joy. And that's my definition of success. Awesome. I can relate to that in more ways than one. So since you spoke about teams and like they say, leadership is a journey, would you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. So has your leadership style changed with the change in roles, with the change in sectors? I'd love to explore and understand that a little bit as we approach the end. (laughs) You know, and I think the best people to answer that are people who have reported into me through my years. Uh, But I do hope that my leadership style has evolved. I do hope that I've become a better leader over the years. 
And you're right, I think changing the sectors also. And my ex-boss in water.org would sometimes turn to me and say, ah, you're responding like an investment banker. So she would keep me in my place. And I think people have stopped saying that. So that's good. Because now as a leader, what gives me most joy is how can I help my team members uh, succeed? I was never a micromanager. Maybe right at the beginning I was, I will admit, till a good supervisor took me aside and walked me through that. But it's now all about empowering and helping people succeed and removing the barriers that they are facing. And that's what gives me joy. And maybe it's like how you are as a parent, right? That's what gives you joy when your kids are uh, doing much better than you ever did. And so I don't know if it's a weird analogy, maybe it is, but I really feel that that's what gives me joy as a leader to see my team really flourishing. Yeah. So a difficult question and please choose not to answer it. Okay. (laughs) So I'm just wondering, you know, if you had to go back to investment banking, would your leadership style go back to the earlier style or has it evolved over the years and it could be applicable to even, you know, a corporate job? You know, that's a great question. And if I were to go back to investment banking, investment banking is a hard sector, as you know. And there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of stress. We used to joke that it's the year used to be Jan to December. So it's as if on Jan 1, the treadmill has been reset and you're back on the treadmill, right? I think with all that I have learned over the years, if I were to go back, I would respond in a different way. I would respond much more through my mind uh, rather than from my heart, which I always did. And I would certainly be less stressed and less angry. Thank you. I know I put you in a spot, but I appreciate your answer. I think it gives a lot of leaders a lot of perspective. Like you know, Atlanta Diaries is a place where aspiring women leaders are learning and unlearning their definitions of success. What are your parting thoughts for these leaders as they transition into larger roles? I would first start by saying, be greedy. Often, you know, I will hear younger leaders, women leaders turn and say, I think it's only possible to have a successful profession or a happy family life. And I would say, no, be greedy, go for both, if that's what you want to do. It, it is hard work. You have to have a network. In the same way you develop a network professionally, you need to develop a network personally, but be greedy. So that would be my first advice. Second advice would be, don't be afraid to put yourself out there or don't be afraid to say yes to new opportunities or new roles. The worst that could happen is somebody will say no. And that's about it. There is nothing worse than that. So don't hesitate to put yourself out there. And the third thing is don't be afraid to make mistakes. It's okay. Learn from your mistakes. Often we are so afraid to make mistakes that we don't push ourselves, right? Those would be the three things. This was absolutely great, Vedika. Thank you very much for this conversation. It's been such a pleasure, Anma. And your style is so easy that it was just like having a cup of coffee and chatting with you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for being a part of this incredible journey with Atlanta Diaries. I've had the privilege of hosting guests 
who courageously shared their most vulnerable selves with me and even if only a small segment of these conversations can champion the journey of one person it will be worth each and every moment and together we know we can create an even greater impact so i do have a humble request for you if you found value in these episodes please consider sharing the podcast with your friends family and on your social media i would also love to hear your thoughts and will really appreciate if you could take a moment to leave a review or rating see you next week for another inspiring journey on atlanta diaries